This is Authorised Access, a podcast from Microsoft Australia and New Zealand about the cybersecurity challenges facing businesses today. On the show, you'll hear from leaders in cybersecurity from Microsoft and beyond as we explore high-level strategies to help confront risk in your organisation. We are living today in a multi-cloud, multi-platform, multi-environment world. It is more critical than ever that we keep our business safe. I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson. And I'm Kenny Singh. Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Authorized Access podcast. Before we get into the conversation, let's hear what we've been up to. Dan, what have you been doing, my friend? Thanks, Kenny. Last week, I was scratching the surface about entry permissions management, and this week, I wanted to get my hands a little bit more dirty and get inside the tech. Overall, getting started wasn't too hard. I was onboarding my AWS account, and it took a few steps and had to do a couple of things like creating OpenID Connect for both Azure and AWS, but on a whole, I can say that I used mostly defaults, and it was a really easy guided tour. It ended up taking a couple of hours, but there was no data being ingested. However, It was really easy just to see how our customers could do this. So Jess, how was your week? Not too bad. Thanks, Dan. This week, I've spent a bit of time taking a look into security news because Twitter does have its uses. And I've been seeing that Log4Shell is still rearing its ugly head with our customers. And so I would like to say to our listeners out there, it is certainly worthwhile to take a look at your infrastructure and ensure you've found all traces of Log4J within your environment and have mitigated against that threat. In some of my more recent conversations with organisations and security folk, it's been highly interesting to hear the talk about where they feel their perceived threats are coming from. I feel that many organisations are underplaying or undervaluing the threat posed by internal threats and insider threats within their organisations. We only need to look at breaches back in 2020 and 2021 and even some of the more recent cases earlier this year to highlight that it takes just one person. I feel that one of our more recent announcements around integrating identity protection signals into Microsoft 365 Defender is massive in terms of what we can now offer security teams on detecting those insider threats. Also from a Microsoft security perspective, I've been getting my hands a little dirty with Defender for Cloud Apps. And I'm loving that threat protection anomaly detections will now include MITRE techniques and sub-techniques where they're relevant. Something I think a lot of our SOC analysts will certainly find useful. So Kenny, what have you been delving into this week? Thank you, Jess. I've been spending a lot of time with the Purview Compliance Portal. It's amazing how far this portal has come over the last few months. We have compliance features from across Microsoft 365 and Azure being moved quite rapidly to this new Purview Compliance Portal. As an example, retention policies, messaging records management tags from the Exchange Admin Center are now all available in the Purview Compliance Portal. And the intention is to bring most of the compliance features, information protection, information governance from across Azure and Microsoft 365 to this centralized portal where they're simple to access, simple to understand, and all available in one place. We've also had a pretty nifty new capability come for cloud attachments. So cloud attachments are documents stored in Microsoft 365. So now when a retention policy is applied to cloud attachments, a copy of the cloud attachment or that document gets held in the preservation hole library in SharePoint Online and the retention label is applied to it. And from that point on, any modifications to the cloud attachment, there's always going to be that copy that's going to be held as is in that preservation hole library. And then finally, PDF document support on iOS and Android with purview information protection. 
formerly Microsoft Information Protection. So now when you apply sensitivity labels to PDF documents, you can work with them on both iOS and Android, and you get a very high fidelity experience. This is not a capability that was available before. And that's it from me. Let's get into the conversation. Today, we're chatting with Venkat Balakrishnan. Venkat is the Chief Information Security Officer, or CISO, in Australia's biggest life insurer, TAL Australia. Speaking with Venkat was great, because not only has he been in the industry for over 20 years, but he also has experience in the finance, education, and consulting sectors. So his breadth of experience gives him a really unique perspective. In this episode, you'll hear Venkat's take on things from a CISO perspective. He'll explain the benefits of digging into tech, and we ask Venkat to look forward into the future. Let's start the conversation. Venkat, a very warm welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me here. And I'm really excited to be part of this and also to share insights with our audience. We love having you on. So I wanted to start actually with the CISO perspective on current challenges in the market. And there's been no shortage of studies, articles talking about the increase in volume and sophistication of cyber security attacks over the past few years. But we're interested in really hearing a lot more from you, especially around what changes did you experience in the cyber threat landscape during the time that we would refer to the COVID period? It's, it's a good question. And, and I think we are now at a point where we can reflect back those things. There's a bit of headspace here, not like when it was in COVID. I think the two main items I would call there is most of the organizations were not set up for remote working arrangement. And I think that was nicely played by threat actors. The second one was amplification of attacks through traditional channels. So if I go back to my first point, so for example, most of the organizations were set up to manage web-related threats are patching vulnerabilities in a much more centralized, controlled environment. They were not set up to move and then perform that in a remote working arrangement, especially like laptops working in a home setup. The second one was amplification of attacks on traditional channels. So a good example is phishing emails. The time is like people used to wait for like, okay, this is a tax time. So do the awareness. This is a Christmas time, holiday time. But during COVID, you were getting information on a daily basis through various channels. So it became really challenging for users to sort of differentiate which is a valid, which is one that masqueraded as phishing. So that is a good, neat example of how hard it was for users. Thank you, Venkat, for the, the insight. I really do enjoy that you've explained it in those two areas and that opportunity that was created for hackers or those threat actors to come in and expose some of those vulnerabilities. And as you explained, we were traditionally looking after our security posture in one way, but then as everyone went home, I think the first area was to try and get productive. And then it was about, well, then how do we secure that? And the agility that teams needed to have is the next part I wanted to ask about is, well, how were you and your team able to quickly adapt to those changes and threats? Was it instantaneous? Was it something that you did need to go through a process of? Look, I think we were fortunate with some of the things as an organization we were doing came really handy. So we were not one of the organizations who was caught at it. Like, you know, we need to do these things, but it's not an urgent one. So we were not on that end. So as an example, we were set up to support remote work arrangement for the entire company if need be. So we had those capability already set up. 
And it was just validating within a few days and making sure the entire workforce was able to do. The second one was we wanted to sort of embed zero trust-based approach. So, and, and one of the first principle was let's secure our entities to be specific like laptops. And because of that principle by which we started that journey well before COVID, we were able to literally manage some of the threats like web-based threats. So as an example, we had like endpoint web proxy already sitting there. So users can go home, browse anything, but still they have that control provided and protected by Tau. Some of the things we had to do within the first few days was how are we going to roll out patches for the vulnerabilities? Because they are going to work from home. They are not going to come back to office. So we moved, mobilized to make sure we were able to dispatch patches for vulnerabilities over the cloud. So it was not like we were fully prepared, but whatever the preparation we had done for various other reasons really came handy. And the rest, we were able to sort of make it happen in a rushed few days, if not few weeks. So look, we live in a cybersecurity threat landscape that's very sophisticated. The scale and frequency of cyber attacks is escalating. That requires very careful thought about how you structure cybersecurity teams across strategy and architecture and operations and a whole raft of other areas and disciplines we have in cybersecurity. We'd absolutely love to understand from your perspective, how have you actually structured your team? Obviously, things that you can share publicly. What are the different functions on your team? What are the core priorities? How do you actually drive continuous improvement? We'd just love to get your perspective on it. Sure, Kenny, I'm happy to share what can be shared at a level. Look, for us, cyber is an end-to-end game, and hence it's structured in that manner. So as an example, from a threat management is one big function. It includes blue team, red team, purple team, whatever the naming you want to give. But the idea is to identify and protect us against the threats at the same time, detect and respond effectively there. Architecture and engineering are core to our team. And that's like a heartbeat because that's a place where you bake cyber at the forefront, even in the ideation stage if possible. And engineering makes sure things are incorporated as the solutions gets its shape. Identity access management is another area. Governance, risk, compliance, without that you can't run anything. So that's really, again, overlaying. And also we have other focused areas like third-party security management, security awareness, and emerging security and emerging technologies. So that's the sort of end-to-end composition we have. What are key areas of focus? Cyber risk management, if I have to sort of provide it in a single one phrase, we want to manage cyber effectively as we are a strong believer as a team that we prioritize and focus on the risks that's really sort of like shaping up. And one of the ways we wanted to do that, you know, a few years back when we started is taking the principles from zero trust. And that's been a journey that we've been going through. Key challenges, I'm going to sort of reiterate what you would have heard from the industry so many times. The resourcing is a challenge. And because of that, you lose that speed to get things done. There is that slowness. What you would like to achieve in months and is now taking more than what you anticipate for. That is a key challenge that we have, especially the talent and the dependency on that. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for sharing, Venkat. There's a notion that's very well understood across the cybersecurity industry that when we think about cybersecurity or privacy, 
we actually have to think about it holistically across people, process, technology. So we'd be very keen to understand when you think about cybersecurity, how do you actually incorporate the people, process, and technology components in your own cybersecurity strategy? I'm a strong believer of that statement, the people, process, technology elements. They have to come together. Sometimes it's like, you know, you, you turn around and look at something presented to you on the table, but when you taste it, you feel like it's not connecting to what's being presented. So that's how it could be if you don't get the composition right. So technology is really the easiest part in cyber of all the three, if I have to be honest with you. And the next part comes with the people. Because if you take a technology, rather I have to say in parallel rather than the next, if you take the technology, you're going to design, build, and then operate. You have to have to have the right composition of the people, whether you're going to take help from someone who's going to get you that technology rightly set up, or you're going to do it by yourself. Then when you're going to run that technology, the key question is, is it again going to be your team or it's a composition of, or like you're going to completely outsource? So what I'm calling out there in the people space is really two aspects, operating model and your sourcing model. People tend to forget about that. Yes, I got the technology. How am I going to operate? Who's who? And how am I going to source it? Is it going to be my team? Or is it going to be a co-source model? Is it going to be fully outsourced model? Without that clarity, if people step into the technology, just looking at us only solution, they will not get the outcome they want to get. We make sure that we have a view about these things. The last element is process. Unfortunately, process is the mostly undermined area in these three. It is the gel that binds everything together. Getting process right helps not only maintaining the outcomes of the build that's done in a technology sense, it also helps in maturing it. As an example, process is a key element that can come and say like, okay, am I hitting the metrics? If not, what improvements need to be done? It, it's a process element that helps you to sort of continuously move forward. Thanks for sharing that perspective. So over to you, Jess. Thank you. I really love the way you spoke about process being the undermined part of it. So thinking about process, I often think about risk and risk mitigation, which I think sits very much with some of those processes. So how have all of these current challenges impacted the way that TAL looks at risk, especially when we're talking about risk identification and risk mitigation and looking at the business impact of those risks? Look, I'm fortunate to be in, in where I am because financial services is one of the mature organization when it comes down to risk management. So it was not something we had to like build fundamentally from the ground. However, when I take cyber risk management, I'm speaking for the industry. I think there's a lot of improvements we can move there. Perhaps most of them are looking at the wrong end of cyber risk management. What I mean by that is it's more on the right side of looking at, okay, these are the controls, these are the prescriptive controls, or these are the controls recommended by industry standards and framework and focused on implementing those controls. I think people have to look at the other side of what contributes or what drives the implementation of those controls. So given where I sit and risk management is much more mature, we have some practice for identifying risk and we use scenario modeling approach. And I'll take a minute to sort of explain how that works in our world. We understand our business very well, where it operates, and who are the audience for our business. 
and what are the assets and that's how they access to. So ultimately, it gives an idea for us to understand our attack surface. So we are visible to our attack surface. That's where we start. And then we flip it around and say, what are the different types of threat actors who would be interested in the attack surface and how they can approach or target those attack surface. The vectors are the avenues through which they can reach. So we take these composition of attack surface, threat actor types, the channels through which they can reach the attack surface, and then we create the scenarios out of it. Those are the three ingredients. And the scenario sprawls. And the good thing about this one is, right, uh, tomorrow if the business moves on to like a multi-cloud environment, we can take that as an input and say what that means for us as a new scenario or augmentation of an existing scenario. Then we use these scenarios and then look at what's the inherent risk, you know, how likely someone can get to it and what the impact would be. And then we apply the layer of existing controls to it and then realize, is it within our risk appetite? Yes or no? If not, what else we can do? And the beauty of this approach is it is a simple conversation because you are starting with a scenario and the scenario is in plain English. People can understand you're operating in this environment and hence you're exposed to these threats. And this is a likelihood it could happen. So we need to do the investment X rather than turning around and saying, I need an investment of X because these three controls are recommended by this industry standard. You know, you've lost the business because they don't have a context of why these three are important. I absolutely love that. And I I love the way you try and put it into words that your business will understand rather than trying to defeat them with jargon. Slightly pivoting a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about privacy and how you see privacy and cybersecurity working together. Cybersecurity is an enabler for privacy. Privacy, I see it's a much more bigger umbrella and one of a large proportion of how you can achieve privacy is where the cybersecurity comes in. The challenges, again, I'm sort of using this opportunity to call out some of the challenges what as the industry faces. These two areas tend to mostly be remain as a disconnected entities, you know, in a construct within an organization. Privacy is seen much more as a paperwork and they don't understand how cybersecurity is an enabler or vice versa. That is one challenge needs to be solved. The other one is most of the cybersecurity looks, it's a data, I need to protect the data. But it's bigger than that because it's not just applying a threat-centric mindset there. There's also a customer-centric mindset you need to apply there from a privacy because the outcome is to protect your customer data. And it's just not a threat-centric view. There is a lot of work need to be done. But coming back to your question, definitely cybersecurity is an enabler for privacy. So Tal and Microsoft have a strong partnership and many of our audience are interested in digging deeper into the technology that helps defend against threats. So with that in mind, what Microsoft and other cybersecurity services do you use today? So I'm thinking things like what IDS systems do you have? What SIEM are you using? I know I've worked with your team previously before. So what can you share publicly with us around what you use to protect your systems? In a simpler way, Microsoft is, has been integrated in several of our cyber capabilities. And if I have to sort of take a step back and look at it, 
it just ranges like from a NIST cybersecurity function, identify, protect, detect, and respond. So it spans across everything. You know, if I flip it back, it says how much Microsoft has taken cybersecurity as one of the core proposition and then build that, you know, massively. And we, we truly see Microsoft as a cyber security player in sort of our capabilities. But however, I, I would like to sort of call out one thing here. We do use Microsoft Sentinel as our scene product, and we were one of the earliest adapter of that. And it solves some of the challenges we were struggling to solve at that earlier period. We had this sort of a crab setup. We had this on-prem world. I neatly sort of brought that together for us. And the second thing is it's much more native, especially when we look at the cloud environment. So the enablement was quicker. And the other features, what we love is it's about some of the push method that Sentinel back that has. We get a lot of detection logic pushed to us. So it's not like we have to build everything from scratch and the power of automation that comes along with that. So we leverage all those things. And why I just picked that one item is, as I mentioned earlier, the detection and response are really key because you can't protect everything in an ever-changing world. So then it comes down to how quickly you can detect and how faster you can respond. And then that hangs on the principle of what is your visibility? If you're not visible to something, you can't detect it. And if you can't detect it, you can't respond to it. And so Sentinel helps us to sort of navigate that visibility quickly. So Venkat, let's talk a little bit more about incident detection and response. What tools, processes have you and your team found valuable in addressing cybersecurity incident effectively? Look, tools, process, people, all the three things are key elements. While I'm saying that, it is clear that you can't protect everything. So that's where the detection and response becomes really, really important. So that's one area we heavily invested over the years. And the key component is much more around the process. Yes, we have the tools to detect, and that is ongoing journey because things are changing around you. It's like, you know, you're sort of a weather pattern. So you need to sort of keep it more relevant to it. So that's where that tools become really handy in the detection. The process becomes really, really core for the response. It's like in a sort of environment where you need to be always switched on. And that happens only when you have that sort of a muscle memory. So it's about how you're like training yourself and the team and the people involved so that they know the processes and they have that sort of a muscle memory to make certain decisions at the time of response. So if I have to summarize that, yes, tools are key components for your detection, but it's not relevant if it's not looking at what's changing around you. In terms of response, definitely the process is a key that's going to gel everything and how much rigor you've done or the practice you've done. And also having the right partner because you can't do everything if a crisis hits. So having that partner clearly understand who's going to support you. It's not one partner, it may be a combination of partners to help you out, to provide the specialization. I think those are the key items. Thanks, Mekut. That makes a lot of sense. We just wanted to switch gears now and just talk about the plethora of regulations, standards, frameworks we have in cybersecurity, and many of them here in Australia and New Zealand, right? Just to name a few, you have the ASD Essential 8, you have the Australian Signal Directorate's Information Security Manual or the ASD ISM, you have APRA CPS 234, so you have a whole raft of cybersecurity regulation standards and frameworks, and I'll just name one more, the Australian Energy Sector Cybersecurity Framework, right? And there's many more. So we just wanted to get a sense from you. 
how do you first go about identifying what regulation standards and frameworks your team and the organization should deeply care about? And second, how do you assess and mature your cybersecurity posture against the requirements of these regulation standards and frameworks? There's so many of them there, right? There's a question, right? So it depends on whom you're speaking to. And then you realize there was a raft of things there. To make it easier, we split it into two groups. The ones mandated we need to comply with, the other ones where we can look up to. So that categorization makes it easier for us. We operate within the financial services, so we are under APRA. So we need to meet the mandates and have, we are part of the critical infrastructure. So we have SOCI. So those, and then again, if you take Privacy Act, so again, we need to sort of follow that. So these are the mandates. So we basically look at what are those requirements, how we can demonstrate that we are compliant to those regulations and standards that comes out of it. The second part is the industry best practices or leading practices, if I have to sort of phrase it. So we look at that and say, what are the things that we can inherit from that with a lens of risk? So this goes back to the previous statement where one of the statements I made earlier, it's risk management is a key thing for us. So assume that we have identified the risk and we know what's our controls there and what's a risk exposure. And in that scenario, we look at our leading industry practices and say, which are the wise industries moving and which controls we can inherit in order to manage and mitigate the risk. So for us, that look up to comes really handy in that. So whether it's a NIST cybersecurity framework or like ISO 27000, so we look at that, we take best out of it. The other part is managing the mandates itself. And then again, the good thing about these mandates are most of them are risk-based. So given that that's a foundation by which we build, we have our information security framework, which looks at the risk and defines the capabilities we need to have, and then the controls that need to sort of manage those risks. And we take that and trace back to these mandates to demonstrate how we are compliant against that. So this has really helped us to manage this. Now, the question is, how do you mature, you know, assess your maturity of your cybersecurity posture? Two ways. If you want to sort of look at industry-wide, and that's where we landed on NIST, because that seems to be a broader adoption across the globe. It helps us to assess our maturity and then have that conversation. Look, this is our maturity. This is your maturity. And this is an industry maturity, regional maturity. So it's a sense of peer view. But within our organization, we look at the cyber risk maturity. As an example, if you take a scenario, what is the likelihood that scenario would have happened three years ago and what we have done over three years to reduce that likelihood? So that is a bit more realistic view for us. If we have managed that scenario and we have reduced the likelihood, we have actually matured. There is an internal view of maturity. There's an external view of maturity. It's a composition approach we use here. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. It is a very complicated landscape, the regulatory landscape. And yeah, look, it's really good to know the, you know, how you're actually going about identifying the regulation standards and frameworks and how you're assessing and maturing your security posture against them. So thank you so much for sharing. I just wanted to shift our focus just a little and get your insights on a topic that we actually get asked about all the time, Beckett. 
So we have a very budding, rich ecosystem of cybersecurity and privacy startups across Australia and New Zealand. We have a lot of cybersecurity and privacy partners in the Microsoft ecosystem. So when you think about managed security services, is that something that you consider in your cybersecurity strategy? Look, once again, whatever you can actually share with us and with our audience here, we'd just be very keen to understand if there are specific managed security services that you have considered or are considering going forward as a part of your larger cybersecurity strategy. What we've had three, four years back is now the same thing we have because we are driven by the changes that's happening outside, whether it's a threat-centric or it's a regulatory-centric or the business is expanding. So, you know, what I say now may be not valid at a point in time, but the guiding principles holds true three years back or even now. So ours is much more like a sandwich approach, if I have to say, where some things can be commoditized and a niche player can sort of provide that. When I say niche player is sort of a pure cyber-centric player, because that's what they breathe day in, day out. And they have the expertise and they can sort of, you know, our view is be able to sort of continue and then provide that even changes around the sort of a talent space, et cetera. So we go for that commodity service, looking for cyber-centric, pure player, and look for that managed service. Then we look up to thought leadership. We are very interested to see how people are solving the problem and where the future is looking to. So we take, again, that help from outside. because So we are remaining relevant and not like the cybersecurity itself. The function itself is just slowly getting outdated. So that's pretty much the top and bottom of the sandwich. The centerpiece is the meat is where my team comes in. So that's where we focus on decide what are the interesting stuff we can do. There is some sort of a thinking, there is some sort of a learning, there's some sort of ownership, governance. So that's a part we keep it. So if I have to give an example, we would be involved in the design, implementation, and then ongoing governance if some item can be commoditized and we wrap it and pass it to the managed service down the road. But we want to sort of own that technology and data and be part of that engineering. So we have that expertise within that. We are involved in the design. And even if it's managed by another provider, we can actively work with them so that we are not like completely out of them and just doing only pure governance role. So those are the principles by which we build and operate. So that has helped us to be a bit more agile to the changes that's happening because we keep the ownership of the technology and data so we can switch and shift managed service providers if we don't see the outcomes, what we want to get out of them. Thank you very much for that. And playing on your sandwich analogy, in terms of that sandwich, where do you see Microsoft Unified support sitting? Are we like the relish on the bottom so trying to work out where your unified support comes into that. It's a combination. And just because of the sheer size and the focus you guys have given in cyber. So there are certain things that can be commoditized. So definitely with the why Microsoft is heading, that I believe is going to become bigger and bigger. And while I'm saying that, you know, I look at every year how whether the Microsoft conferences or RSAs and how the things have been shifting taking in the identity space or like even the threat management space. So it's all about like simplification, consolidation, while at the same time maturing the cyber capabilities and baking the approaches of zero trust into it. So 
as I said, we are the need in the middle. So I do see Microsoft playing on the both the sides of the sandwich. Just as we're closing out this section on our discussion, another challenge that our industry faces is skills. How do you and your team upskill, I think internally, everyone effectively to protect, detect, and respond to the advanced cybersecurity threats that we're seeing today? I have a silver bullet for this. I don't think so. Someone has solved this, but there is a progressiveness here. And I think as an industry, we are figuring out, we are maturing. So the skill problem or like it's upskilling the existing professionals and also like training newbies into the area is, is a bigger, wider problem. But I can give an insight into how we do that. And it's better than before. So we make sure that everyone in our cyber is an 80-20 rule in a way. What that means is if someone is focused on threat as a threat analyst, they do 80% of the time the responsibilities specific to the being as a threat analyst. We encourage them to say at least 20% you have to do something in other functions of cyber, whether they are like spending some time in an engineering area or in a cloud security. So we want to sort of enable people to broaden one. The second thing is we also want to make sure create that mesh, not dependencies, in a way fallback so that we are not in a single point of failure. So that has sort of helped us that 80-20. We also make sure in terms of training, Pretty much every partner we work with, we make sure they provide training as one of the construct. So it's not just we buy a technology and we use it. We say we need minimum seats and then it is their responsibility to enable them so we get best out of the technology. And that is a requirement without which we don't sign any agreements with our security partners. Third one, we structure a curriculum for every level, including myself on a year and we commit to it. And we commit at least 40 CPEs, which is like one week of training. And that looks at, and we do it in person, we do it virtual. So there is a lot of composition we use to get there. I've seen it to give benefit. As I said, it's not the silver bullet we have. It is better than, but the main thing is that 80-20 is very much welcomed by my team. Because one of the complaints that I've always heard before that is, I'm siloed in my function. I don't have visibility. I don't understand how the dependencies. So they eventually leverage this 80-20 to get that sort of a better view of a threat that cuts across different functions. That makes a lot of sense, Venkat. Thank you. So look, just building on the theme that you just mentioned, simplification and consolidation. We can't conclude a cybersecurity conversation without touching zero trust. (laughs) And I think you knew that at some point we would dig a little deeper into the zero trust conversation, right? So as a security leader, we would just absolutely love to get your perspective on how you're actually thinking about a zero trust strategy for your environment to really simplify and consolidate, you know, across all these different vectors of identities and endpoints and apps and data and network and infrastructure, especially in an environment that's multi-cloud, multi-platform. I wish I can fast forward and then tell you, like, I'm one of the few guys who've solved this problem successfully. Zero trust to me is a journey. It's a technology you just buy, put it, and then, yeah, I'm now zero trust enabled. I think that is the biggest challenge that's in the industry because people look at, I need a firewall. Okay, I put it using a technology to solve the problem. I need an endpoint protection. This is in a different dimension. It is a concept. It's a model and you sort of eventually work towards as a journey to reach that model. Some of the things what we have taken is, again, you know, you would see me saying this, 
guiding principles. So perhaps at heart, I'm, a, I'm still an architect. So I, I go back to that and say, what are the guiding principles we're going to apply to get there to the zero trust? I can't sit down and go through it, but I'll just call a few things. It's the same foundation by which the zero trust is built. How can you verify? You, know, you just don't trust by. And second, give minimal and assume that you can't trust. So we put that principle. And now the question comes, okay, fantastic, Venkat, you've set these principles. Now you're going to take a journey to get there. How did you, or like how far you've been, or like how did you make this far? So we basically took three things, entity, identity, and data as the three pillars to approach or solve this problem. And we said we need to sort of solve these three together, but something, one of that as a predominant focus. And then 2019, when we started with a clear goal to sort of let's move forward, entity was the focus. So what that means is we see laptop, desktop, servers, anything like a technology-based element as an entity. And we say, how can we protect this? And that helped us to look at the threats targeting that and then put relevant controls. And it's interesting. There are When we took that approach, we said for this entity, there are baseline controls. Let's take laptop or a server. We said these are the baseline controls. If that entity becomes one of a crown jewel asset for us, then the question is what else we can put on top of it. So that is one way how we solve that entity problem to give a flavor, you know, it's endpoint protection controls. And then we started with, okay, how can we sort of make sure the operating system is hardened at a lower level? And how can we make sure the operating system, while it's used by a user, protected, whether it's an endpoint protection, endpoint detection, response, endpoint proxy. So we started to look at that and we feel comfortable with that journey. To be honest, that's the easiest part to do. Again, it comes down to the technology. The second part was identity-centric. And again, you run these parallel, but one is going faster, the other one is not at the same phase. In the identity-centric, we looked at the identity from an external view to begin with before moving into the internal. And in the external view, we said, okay, so how you know, whether it's a user identity or a system identity, you know, how can that be used to access this entity, whether it's a remote service or an application or anything? And that's where we said, okay, you've got a VPN. So it has to be MFA. What are the threats? Someone can replay the credentials. And it's a cloud-based service or a software as a service. Especially there are a lot of threats and mostly incidents we have seen people have breached. The email was compromised because it's a simple password. We use passwords. So we started focusing on the external threats specific to identity, and we spent time solving that one. And the journey continues. It never stops. Now it's focused on internal. So again, you're taking a specific entity and focused on the identity. I'm playing with the words here. So as an example, you take a software service as an item. So take like Office 365. Someone is having an email. The composition, what it can allow one to do by taking at least these two. They are authenticating and MFA, it stops one biggest threat. Someone can't replay the credential. Second, single sign-on. You don't want ex-employees still having access to it. So we make sure that there is a single sign-on as an example. Connecting to the SaaS, we make sure the entity is identified because we now know the laptop or the device they connect to from which we can actually verify that. 
then we can also sort of enforce certain conditional access, like are they coming from a certain geography? So that's where the sort of combination of entity identity plays very, very well. The last one is data. Um, That is the biggest problem to solve because it's not a pure cyber problem. It's a broader business problem. And it is taking chunks and moving. We treat data much more like a circle of trust. And using the devices trusted, we know the entity um, by that. Then we take the identity, whether it's a user or application accessing it, then we decide, okay, the data can be made available to them. So taking that three-pillar approach has sort of helped us to move forward and be better than what we are, what we were. I'll park there. And as I said, like I haven't completed that journey. It's a journey that just moves on. But I think that is the mindset I would recommend people to take when they focus on zero trust. So we've already spoken a little bit about risk. So I wanted to ask you about cyber risk management and the fact that it is top of mind for a lot of boards and executive management globally. So when Tal is thinking about effective cyber risk management, how do you look at putting something like that in place in an organisation? Well, I think it's important to understand two things before thinking about how that cyber risk management program will land in any organisation. The first one is understanding how mature is the risk management? And second, how the board and executive management is versatile and cyber. I think the second one is more important because you tend to find risk management at a decent level in most of the organization because that's core for any organization to move forward. But the second point is where I normally give this an example. Like if you give a telescope to two people and ask one to look on the north side of the sky and south side of the sky, they both are going to describe in a different way. Cyber is like that. So people have their own perception of like, this is what cyber is. And second, what that cyber means for that organization. And that's really, really important to land and get a baseline. So then everyone is clear, especially at that level, what cyber means for that organization, then it's easier to build a cyber risk management. And that's where it comes down to whether they're worried about data loss, they're worried about third-party supply chain, they're worried about the regulatory compliance and how cyber connects to it. I think that's a key. Apart from it, it comes down to how that cyber risk management program itself is structured. And that goes back to one of the items we discussed where you need to have a sound risk identification approach because some organizations tend to look at, okay, that's what our risk from last year, take the sheet, repeat it for this year and move forward for next year. That doesn't really cut out or tailor for the changes that's happening. And the changes is a mix. It's just not necessarily threat-centric. Business might have evolved and your attack surface might have become bigger, or even the business might have decided they are not going to do in a particular segment. So that means it's an opportunity to sort of cut down so you don't have to waste extra money in that space where you don't have that segment of retail or like different customers. So for us, that risk identification methodology is really sound. And that's where I'm just, again, repeating, think about the attack surface, think about who would be interested in your business as a threat actor, how they can approach And except the attack surface, the other things are much more industry knowledge you can leverage. There's a lot of content there. 
So using that, build the scenarios, map the controls, understand whether you can live with that. So one of the discussion we say is, look, we can't patch every vulnerability because the numbers just exponentially is growing. And then you start to look at how do you sort of manage that? Is CVSS 9 rated as important or CVSS 3 rated important? So there is a prioritization that comes as an example. So that's where the risk-led prioritization comes and look at whether it's within the risk of type. If not, think about the controls and have you scope the controls and execute that. So these really are standard ones. I'm not saying anything that's out of the book, but people tend to forget about that sort of a front point, getting everyone on the baseline, understanding what are the cyber risks for the business and keeping a methodology off ensuring that it's relevant for them through a scenario modeling and risk identification approach. That's fabulous. Thank you so much. I like the way you simplify it and you bring it back to basics. It makes it much easier, I think, for boards and executives to be able to see the benefit. Now I'm going to look a little bit at some of the other areas of cybersecurity that you and Tal might be looking closely at adapting a cybersecurity strategy for. So things like IoT, OT environments, decentralized identity, any of these something that you are looking towards or trying to look at pivoting your cybersecurity strategy to look at? Instead of me looking specific to Tao, I can sort of take a step back again and share the interest, what we have and how we want to approach those things. Definitely, it's a risk-led approach. If the business moves heavily into an OT space, as an example, or IoT, you know, it's, it's much more mixed now. All the OT has a specific conundrum or a decentralized identity. We will make sure we support business and at the same time enable it. Doesn't matter. So we, we are an insurance industry. So we are not like one of the utilities where we have heavy OT. But however, it doesn't matter what business you are. You have a lot of IoTs. They are invasive, put it in that way. You walk into the meeting rooms, you got smart TVs. They all are smart in for that reason. It's no more dumb TVs. I'm just giving an example, smart television so people can connect. So if you walk around, you will see a lot of IOTs. And that is something like people are more blind to. So that's one thing we look at and say, what are we doing about those IOTs? We need to manage them. Not to the level that we need to manage other IT assets, but however we have to manage. So we tend to cage them. They just do what they have to do and they remain within the cage. And that is again a risk-based view. So you put the relevant effort there. So that's definitely was part of our strategy and that's why we landed here of caging the IOTs. So back to your point, we don't operate much in OT, but we have relevant IOTs and I think every business asset, if they have a meeting rooms, they have to relook at, especially now with the hybrid working, people go to office more for collaboration. And that's where these IOTs come into effect. That's wonderful. Thank you. Now, we're kind of going back to risk a little bit. We've kind of jumped around a lot here. So insider risk, and I see a lot about insider risk. It seems to be a really big focus at the moment for cybersecurity professionals globally. A lot of talk about it, a lot of focus. There's been a lot of news articles. Can you share any thoughts with us on an insider risk management strategy that has been adapted for what's happening now and also looking at future challenges? We've all been so focused on external threats and threats coming from 
outside threat actors. And as we mature, it's natural for people to turn around and look at what's the impact that could be caused by insider risk. Not everyone agrees, like the damage caused by insider risk is heavier than what an outsider can cause. There is no disagreement. So, but however, depending on the region and the industry sector you speak to, the viability is where I think it changes. There's a very low likelihood. Some believe there is a high likelihood. And it does make sense depending on the industry sector and the sort of assets someone is protecting. How do you go and manage the insider risk? I don't think it's a single combination. There is a multifaceted approach that's required. The insider risk, people look at from a multiple angle. One, is any of the employee being targeted? Because some of the news that came up last year was like companies have employees who've been targeted to sort of help outsiders to run certain tools, malicious tools, or like to divulge some information. So that comes down to what controls you have if a person, whether disgruntled or interested with some other you know, financial motivation, is going to go and abuse his or her power. I think that's where technology, which is the easiest, again, I've been repeating this, easiest to sort of look at. Access management is a key thing. We talk about a lot of privilege access, and that is a right problem in every organization. Privileges accumulate. And managing privileges is a bigger problem. We are good in giving things. We struggle in taking it out or managing it. So definitely that access management spawns into different levels, whether it's an infrastructure level or an application level or specific to data. That access needs to be, and it's an ever-growing problem, by the way. It's not easier to manage. But uh, having a clear strategy and then looking at high-risk people who can cause more damage is a key thing to solve that problem. The second one is baselining. I'm not here to name technologies, but I can call out the concepts. There are tools and technologies out there which can baseline and create patterns of user behaviors and understanding and profiling the high risk and privileged user really helps us. So when there is an anomalous activity, it just warrants that sort of active analysis. That's really some of the benefits you can get out of technology. The other one is engagement, people aspect. You need to get the pulse rate of the people. And this is not just from a cyber angle as an organization. What is the employee engagement? And then looking at from what keeps them going. Is it a micro problem within the team? It's a macro problem across the organization that enables to get a feel about whether as an organization, you really have to be concerned about insider risk or based on that sort of engagement results you have as a data point, feel confidence that there is a sort of low likelihood there. Process-wise, definitely having those certain process outside of cyber. As an example, if someone is at a financial motivation, they'll be a bit more interested in fraud or colluding to make a fraud. So I think it's just not, again, cyber-centric, if I have to call it out. So you have to look at the processes that's outside of cyber and more related to financial controls and how that's fusion with cyber can make a big difference. So hopefully I've sort of given a perspective of what I see from a technology, people and process around this insider risk. And it's evolving area. It's like, we're going to learn as we move forward and it will become real when there are incidents across the different parts or like, you know, major institutions where they start to report that insider risk is really, really real. Similar to our like remote working arrangement, 
can cause a havoc and COVID sort of proved it. And then everyone will start to focus more on this inside of risk management. So Venkat, as we close out this session, I have one final question to yourself and it's around how do we attract and retain cybersecurity talent? And would love to get your insights. And I know a lot of our audience ask us this question and I'm sure that you're getting asked that question as well. So how do you do it and some of the best practices that you'd like to share? I think there's two parts here. One is attracting, as you, and another one is retaining. So let me look at the attraction parts. And I can speak of my journey, but it can be made as a principle and looked wider. You have to look at what is that uniqueness or like something that the candidates are not going to get that you're going to offer. And then that's a mutual. So they have to see value out of it. And you also should be able to provide. So as an example, we push 80-20 rule and then a 20-80 rule. And the 80-20 I've sort of mentioned, like you do only 80% of your core job, 20% you're going to go explore, become broader in cyber. What we also do is 20-80. So that means the team is composed of only 20% of the people that's 10 plus years experience. The rest 80% is definitely newcomers to eight years experience. So we basically want people to join the team, to challenge the thinking of senior people and create a diversified environment there. And that aspect has sort of gelled with many people who have joined our team because one of the common things they point out is, I know enough about my area. I'm really good about that technology or the domain I'm working. I don't have broadened visibility and I want to grow further in my career. And that's one thing I'm not getting an opportunity. And also they don't get enough coaching. So this 80-20-20-80 rule has really helped us. Now, retaining the talent, I think it's the hardest one given the market we are in and shortage of talent. And there's a lot of transformations in the digital space, data space, and even in the cyberspace. It's retention is a hard thing. So we have an open conversation with our candidates. We tell them, look, there is opportunity to grow. The point that you're looking at that you're not growing in your career and we'll have an open conversation and we'll help you out. So we understand at some point people will make their decision. And that's where we look at what is their motivation? Is it about growing in the career? Is it about getting brought in experience? It's about work-life balance. So we look at it and we try to make sure how much we can complement their requirements. And that has paid as well. So in over three years, we haven't lost more than 4% of our talent. So we've retained 96% of the people we've hired so far in the cyberspace. Well, we'd like to thank you very much, Venkat, for joining us for this podcast. Your insights have been incredibly insightful. I know I've taken plenty of notes. So thank you very much. That's really impressive. Thank you, Venkat, for your time and sharing all your insights. I know I've learned a lot. Jess and Kenny, I think we always enjoy connecting with yourself. So on that note, that's all we have time for today. But thank you so much again for attending. And to everyone, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot, Jess. Thanks for having me. And thanks to the audience for listening to this. You've been listening to Authorized Access, a show about the challenges that businesses face when it comes to cybersecurity. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft ANZ. Microsoft offers a comprehensive set of end-to-end security solutions that span people, devices, apps, and data. For further information, please visit the website, aka.ms slash authorized access. 
This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Authorised Access, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson. And I'm Kenny Singh, and we'll be back next episode with more Authorised Access. Access.